So many listeners that know me know that for the last six plus years, I have dedicated my career to working with birds of prey. I have worked with them in many capacities, such as wildlife rehabilitation, education, and trapping and banding. Last December, I got the opportunity to work alongside field biologists with the Peregrine Fund's California Condor Reintroduction Project in the remote desert of Arizona. I spent close to a month working and learning from the condor biologists and working closely with these critically endangered birds. While I was there, I volunteered my time to help with tracking these individuals as well as helping administer chelation therapies to the sick condors. For those that don't know, the number one reason for mortality in this bird is actually a preventable one. We will discuss this in more detail during our interview with Tim. I could easily get sentimental about my first trip to the desert, working with these incredible birds and amazing group of dedicated biologists, but we definitely don't have time for that today. I will just end by saying it was an experience I will never forget. I was lucky enough to join the Peregrine Fund again last month for the public release of four condors into the wild. Once a year, just a few birds are released into the wilds of northern Arizona. Others are released in California and Mexico as well. It was a festival-like atmosphere, and over 750 people came out from all over the country to witness these birds take their first flight into the wild. Once the crowds faded, we spent the following days watching these new releases from morning till dusk. We would watch these birds through binoculars and scopes from sometimes over a mile away just to ensure they are adjusting well and staying safe. It was again an incredible experience to be a part of. There is something to be said for these incredible selfless biologists that have dedicated their lives to saving this incredible bird, the largest bird in North America. They are definitely some of the most dedicated individuals I have ever met, and their drive and determination to save a species knows no bounds. And today, I am excited to share an interview with one of those dedicated biologists. Thank you for joining us for My Wildlife Style Radio, a podcast series for busy wildlife professionals like wildlife rehabilitators, educators, and veterinary staff. I am your host, Emily Davenport, and I am the founder and executive director for the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Alliance. Our mission is to elevate the care and protection of Rocky Mountain wildlife by fostering a sense of community and collaboration among wildlife professionals. Continuing education and training is an important component of our mission. Most wildlife professionals don't have time to further their education, and we believe helping wildlife professionals experience learning in their preferred format and at their own pace results in better educational outcomes. It is also a part of our mission to help make continuing education more affordable and accessible so that more individuals can participate and become even more effective caregivers. I am very excited today. I am here with Tim Houck, Condor Reintroduction Project Field Manager with the Peregrine Fund's California Condor Reintroduction Project. Tim has worked with the Peregrine Fund for the last seven years and has been the field manager for the last three years. He graduated from Ithaca College with a degree in environmental science and has been working with various bird species since 2001. Tim, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. 
So the California Condor Reintroduction Project was started back in 1996 with the release of Six Birds. Can you tell us a little more about the Condor Project and how you got involved with it? So the Peregrine Fund was approached by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the early 90s um, to be a partner with the Condor Reintroduction um, because the requirements were to have um, separate disjunct populations in case anything were to happen gotcha. to the population in California. So they chose the Southwest and asked the Peregrine Fund because of their great successes with the Peregrine Falcon mm -hmm. uh, to join. And uh, we started a captive breeding program at our headquarters at the World Center for Birds of Prey up in Boise, Idaho. Nice. And uh, by 1996, like you said, we started releases of California condors into the wild in the Vermilion Cliffs. Awesome. That's very cool. So for those of our listeners that are not familiar, California condors are actually a new world vulture species and the largest North American bird species with a wingspan of close to 10 feet. Uh, they are obligate scavengers and use their keen eyesight to um, find carrion. That's what they eat. They eat dead things. Uh, but many people don't realize that in 1982, there were only 22 known individuals that were left on the planet. Um, and that's why the reintroduction project started, I believe. Um, can you tell us a little more about the species in general and what caused its decline? Yeah, well, like you said, condors are a scavenging bird. They're vultures. So their closest relative is the Andean condor, okay. South America. Um, of course, we also have turkey vultures and we have black vultures here in North America. Mm -hmm. But the California condor is kind of the king of all the vultures, being as large as it is and being able to dominate carcasses like right. it does. Um, yeah, so at the all-time low of only 22 birds, um, we knew there was a big issue. And mm -hmm. they actually had to do photographic surveys to determine uh, how many birds were left because sure. we didn't have transmitters on birds back then and we couldn't track the birds. Mm -hmm. So by taking photographs, we could see different molt patterns in the feathers and determine individual birds that way. So they came up with about 22 birds left and that's when they had to make this hard decision you know, were we going to step in mm -hmm. and humans intervene and save this species, or at least attempt to save the species, or were we just going to let it go and let it die off, right, basically? Right. And there were different opposing viewpoints there, and it's, it's kind of a, it was a weird time, and a lot mm -hmm. of people actually said, let them die with dignity. Let's mm -hmm. not put our grubby human hands right. all over these birds, and let's just let them go peacefully. Um, this bird has been around since the last ice age, so wow. this is a, a, a Pleistocene bird that has carried all the way through to current time, which is really impressive. And some of those groups that said that were like Audubon Society sure, was yeah. one of those people that advocated uh, letting them go with dignity. Interesting. But ultimately, that didn't happen, thank goodness. Luckily. And they decided to start trapping the condors. Well, first they, they decided, well, let's put some telemetry on a few of the birds, so let's get mm -hmm. permission to trap a few birds and radio transmitter them. And so they did that and they got the permission and they got some transmitters out there. And uh, during that period, four of those birds were recovered hmm. that had died. And this is the beauty of putting transmitters on it. We were able to get some information back because we okay. didn't know what was happening before. We had theories, but it takes science to drive these things forward. Mm -hmm. um, of those four birds, three of them happened to die of lead poisoning hmm. and the other one died of cyanide poisoning. Interesting. Yeah, which was, you know, fairly common in the ranching days when that sure. cyanide was used more um, uh, for predator control. Wow. So all four of those causes of death were preventable, which was really um, <laughs> both disturbing and hopeful. Right. So if it was a natural cause of death and condors were unsustainably dying, then we'd be mm -hmm. in trouble. 
But because they're human caused, maybe we can solve this problem. And, and that's where humans had to step up and step in and play a role. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's, I didn't know about the cyanide poisoning. And I think a lot of people that work with wildlife now kind of know about lead poisoning. And we'll talk about that a little more. But, but that's really interesting. Really yeah, interesting yeah. information. And it is interesting how science tends to drive things sometimes slower than we would like, but right. um, very interesting. So, so tell me about the current population here in Arizona. Um, any wild hatch chicks this year? Uh, yeah, we do. So we have, gosh, we're getting close to 20 breeding pairs in our population. Wow. And our population size right now is sitting right around 87 individuals. So you can see that the program has been around for a while mm -hmm. and the population age structure is really growing in age. Yeah. And so that's giving us more more breeding pairs, which, you know, breeding age is about six, but okay. they don't usually successfully reproduce until around eight, okay. somewhere in there. And so um, we're seeing a really, really great, um, really great number of pairs that are able to produce young. And then the next step is monitoring that and seeing if they are producing young. And so they are. Uh, we have confirmed one chick this year, awesome. which is in Marble Canyon, not too far away from the Vermilion Cliffs here. Okay. Um, and that chick is doing really well. It's just over four months old. Both parents have been tending to the chick regularly. Fantastic. And that chick won't fledge until it's about six months of age. And that's the point about which it'll be fully developed and have that muscle strength and structure and feather development to take okay. flight into the wild for the first time. So we generally start to see fledging of birds in the wild around November. Okay. It's quite a process. So 57 days for egg incubation nice. and six months for development of that chick. That's a, so really that's a long real time. time commitment for yeah. the parents. Well, which is, uh, you know, that's some great insight into why the population numbers for this species were probably never really that high because right. of their slow reproductive rate, only able to have a chick every other year if they're mm -hmm. successful. Um, so they do not reproduce quickly, but they do live a long time. So they're a long-lived species, and best guess estimates are that they can live 50 to 70 years in the wild. Wow. If given wow. the chance and, sure. you know, if mortality doesn't step in and, yeah. Do you know what the oldest bird in your population is? Um, I do. And the oldest bird in our population is, gosh, I believe it's 23 okay. years old. Nice. Yeah. Sorry, I put you on the spot there. No, that's that okay. <laughs> yeah, they're from the, we have a couple left from the original releases back in 1996. So. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is cool. Very and they're, cool. There's some of our, yeah, they're the, uh, the, 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 the anchors of our population sure, and yeah. great mentors for the rest of the birds. So pretty awesome. cool to have those guys around still. Awesome. That's really great information, Tim. Thank you. Um, so what is the goal for the population here in Arizona? Well, we have some recovery goals that are you know, written into the, rec the California Condor Recovery Plan, and mm -hmm. that is to have 150 individuals in this disjunct population mm -hmm. with 25 breeding pairs. Okay, wow. So we're working towards that obviously, and you know, whether that means recovery is another question that we're currently answering mm -hmm. with US Fish and Wildlife and trying to revise certain numbers and criteria. And yeah, th those numbers are probably in flux, but that's what we've shot for and we're, we're getting, getting closer close. to that. Yeah, yeah, which is really, really nice to see, but we still have a long way to go. Definitely, yeah, that's very cool though. So you and your crew have actually had a very busy couple of weeks. Um, you guys just released four new birds back into the wild about a, a week ago. Is that true? That's correct. Can you tell us a little more about the release and how it went? Yeah, the, the release this year, every fall we do 
what we call the annual public release, which coincides with National Public Lands Day that the BLM celebrates. Just a celebration of our public lands and our program happens to be situated right on public lands. So it's a really nice collaboration with all our cooperating partners, BLM, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Forest Service, and Arizona Game and Fish, and Utah Division of Wildlife, all these different oh, wow. agencies come together. And we put on this public release where we invite the public out to our release site, well, basically our, our condor viewing area. And from below, we, we gather the public and we explain to them everything that's happening with the program and what's about to happen with the birds. And essentially, we have those four birds up on top of the Vermaine Cliffs, about mm -hmm. 1,500 feet up oh, wow. from where the, the folks are standing. Mm -hmm. And those birds are in a pen. They've been there for about a week, acclimating to their environment. And we're going to open the gate on the pen and we let the, the birds fly at will. We do a soft release, is nice. what we call it. And uh, those birds are free to go as soon as the gates are open. And this year, three of the four birds flew out immediately, which gave the, the crowd quite a, quite a thrill. And there were like 760 some odd people there That's this amazing. year, which is a new record for, for our public releases. So the interest from the public is, is growing, which is really nice to see. Um, people care. So the releases went well. Um, I'm biased. I was actually there this year and got to see everything. It was wonderful. Um, people were very excited and there was a lot of energy in the crowd, um, which was really neat. Why do you guys only release a few birds at a time? Uh, good question. Well, uh, these birds don't have parents. So these mm -hmm. birds were raised in captivity. Uh, these four birds in particular happen to be raised at the Oregon Zoo. So mm -hmm. they came down to us from the Oregon Zoo and we prepared them for release with transmitters and tags and upon release, they don't have parents, like I said. So right. we're, we're out there, the biologists are out there to observe, monitor, mm -hmm. and assist if needed these young birds as they go and they navigate the wild for their first few weeks mm -hmm. because there are predators out there and it is a dangerous environment if you're, if you're inexperienced. Sure. And so it's up to us to get those birds enough experience to have the knowledge to survive in the wild, which the rest of the population does quite well. Mm -hmm. but when you have coyotes on the landscape and you're a young bird, you have to know to roost high up on the cliffs, mm -hmm. not to perch down low on the valley floor. And so if a bird were to do that, one of these new releases, one of the crew members would hike out, scare that bird as if, as if it was a ground mm -hmm. predator. And uh, hopefully that bird would take off and realize that that's not a safe place for me to be right. and go up higher on the cliff face to a safe spot and we'll stop We'll stop pushing it around and harassing it, which is we try not to harass them too much. We don't want to stress a bird out, but uh, we do want it to learn what is a good place to be and what's a bad place to be. And so we do, we do that for about the first three weeks these birds were out there. Every day we're watching them and making sure that they're roosting in good spots and, and feeding. They need to learn how to feed with the rest of the flock. And there's a hierarchy and they're at the bottom right now. Gotcha. So the dominant birds will kick them off carcasses and basically give them a hard time for the first you know, week or two weeks. And so we watch that very closely to make sure that they're integrating into the flock and feeding well and roosting well. And after, oh, these birds have been so great. So after about a week, they've started to do really well. Awesome. They really got it down. And we'll watch for a couple more weeks just to double check, make mm -hmm. sure that everything's going well and they're integrated into the wild. And before you know it, these birds will be out free foraging on their own, heading up you know, 80 miles to the Northwest and hitting Zion National Park and mm -hmm. taking a little parks tour, maybe going to the <laughs> South Rim, 
and uh, yeah, they're going to be doing great. That's great. No, that's super cool. And your population essentially goes from the South Rim all the way up to Zion, sometimes a little further when you have yeah. a wanderer. Sometimes a little further. Uh, we had a bird go to Wyoming this summer. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. That's one of the largest flights we've ever had. Wow. So pretty cool stuff. And that happens usually with young birds. They like to take these like exploratory explore. flights and... And yeah, the, the population as a whole isn't moving too much farther north than Zion, but over time, it'll happen. Definitely. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are wildlife rehabilitators, so I think it's kind of validating in a sense to um, see what larger groups are doing um, with like an endangered species, for example, because a lot of rehabilitators that work with raptors and other animals use similar methods. So they'll use mentors, uh, mentor birds or foster parents and um, we don't usually get to monitor our birds afterwards or our animals afterwards. So it's really validating to see what you guys are doing on kind of a larger, more niche sca- uh, scale. So mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody follows condors as closely. Nobody follows a bird species as closely as we study condors. So True, yeah. It's, yeah. It gives us a lot of information that can be applied to other disciplines and other, other species, like you said. It's really awesome. it's helpful. And very cool to see that the new releases are doing well as also yeah. and, and getting up there and feeding and doing great. So in addition to the California condors, um, you guys are just one project underneath the Peregrine Fund. Um, what other species is the Peregrine Fund working with um, in the U.S. and around the world? Yeah, we're, we're international. So the Peregrine Fund works with over 100 species in over 70 different countries. Wow. So we're on pretty much every continent Mm -hmm. across the globe, which is really impressive as an organization. We're not that big. We're a small nonprofit, but our reach is really great because of our ability to work with local communities and local governments to affect change in raptor populations. So we're we're out there to try to protect and conserve all raptor species. Mm -hmm. So anytime we can find a bird that is imperiled or a species that is imperiled, we're going to try to do everything we can as an organization to step in and assist. Awesome. Very um, cool. Very cool. Uh, we work with, gosh, yeah, like harpy eagles in mm-hmm. Panama. Um, we've discovered, our biologists have discovered three new species of bird in Madagascar. We've oh, done wow. work in Madagascar for a long time yes. in helping them grow their national park system for mm-hmm. conservation of species. Um, vultures in Africa, mm-hmm. vultures in India quite a few different projects with a lot of impact. So it's something we're really proud of. And you guys recently came out with an article about uh, uh, raptor population decline, I believe. We did, yeah. That was a, a pretty big article. Yeah. And, you know, it basically shows that, that raptors, <laughs> something we've known because we work with right. raptors, but raptors are in decline worldwide. Yeah, so. something like uh, over 50% of raptor population is declining. Yeah. Yeah. So in regards to that, um, what are the top reasons for um, mortality in the condor populations? Well, like we talked about earlier, for condors, that work that was done with the telemetry of birds mm-hmm. in the 80s was really foreshadowing to what we were going to see later on in the program as we studied these birds more closely. And still today, the leading cause of mortality is lead poisoning. Okay. And that takes about 55% wow. of our diagnosed deaths are from lead poisoning. Wow. And then the next leading cause of death, diagnosed cause of death, is predation, which mm. is, you know, we'd expect that. And that's almost a quarter of our diagnosed deaths are from predation. So if we can get those, those lead numbers down, um, the birds stand a good chance. We expect some natural, natural um, 
causes of mortality, but the lead number is not sustainable. Right. No, absolutely. So as a wildlife rehabilitator and a lifelong student of, you know, medicine and wildlife medicine, you know, I'm particularly interested in what you guys are learning about lead poisoning, um, both kind of at a high level and, and detailed. Can you share a little more about that, how you guys are diagnosing, treating? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think I'll take you back to kind of the beginning to sure. start is we suspected this was an issue when we saw birds starting to leave our release site and start to forage on the Kabat Plateau where the North Rim is, where there's a healthy deer herd and there's an annual hunting season. And so we started to see these lead exposures and we thought they were peaking around that hunting season and we weren't sure. So we had to do some studies. So we started trapping birds all year round and seeing what month by month, where were the greatest spikes in blood lead? Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that they were right after the hunting season. So in our minds, we already knew what was going on, but we had to, we had to do some more scientific research and publish some papers so that, so that it could be very well recognized by the scientific community and, and everybody else for that matter. And so one of the things they did that was really cool is we did this fragmentation study up in Wyoming where we shot 34 white-tailed deer. We got over-the-counter uh, hunting tags and we shot them with lead-based ammunition mm -hmm. because this is what we suspected. The lead poisoning was coming from lead fragmentation in the carcasses during the hunting season, whether that be a gut pile that's left in the field or an animal that, that escapes or eludes a hunter and goes off and dies in the wild. So we suspected this and we were strongly confident, but we needed to go prove it. So we shot these deer under normal hunting circumstances with traditional lead-based ammunitions. And what we did is we x-rayed the deer at uh, different stages. We x-rayed them at whole stage, the whole deer. We x-rayed the gut piles and we even x-rayed packaged meat. Mm -hmm. And so not surprisingly, we found that of the 34 deer, as we x-rayed them, 100% of those deer contain some lead fragments. Um, the interesting part is that you know, 74% of those deer showed over a hundred fragments. So the numbers started to come in and we started to be like, wow, that's way more than we thought. Mm -hmm. And specifically the gut piles, which is the biggest food source from hunting for condors and other scavengers. That was where the real shocker was because 90% of those gut piles showed lead fragments. And five of those, uh, five of those 34 showed over 200 fragments and wow. one of them showed over 400 fragments. So crazy, crazy numbers. We thought there was some lead in these carcasses, but we didn't realize how much, much. lead. And so that's when we started doing more of this uh, bullet fragmentation study and, you know, finding out that, you know, traditional lead ammunition only retains, you know, the, about two thirds of its mass. Mm -hmm. So a third of that bullet is left in fragments inside a carcass. That's incredible. And there was a lot of naysayers early on too that said it couldn't possibly be from this. Yeah, And yeah. so it's great that we now have some more tangible evidence to, right. to show this too. And at this point, this is just completely accepted science. You know, there awesome. was, like you said, there was a lot of people mm -hmm. that, that came out against us and said that this was, oh gosh, motivated by second amendment right. rights and, and trying to take guns away from people and, and take the food out of, you know, the, the freezers of, of hunters. And, and that was not, not it at all. Of course, we were just basically we're, we're doing science to show the public what's happening to this really closely studied species, the California condor. And that information is valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll come back um, to hunting and hunters here in a minute, but, um, just because I was amazed one of the first times I was out here working with you guys, um, the lead levels that you guys see in your population blew me away. 
because yeah. you guys have on-site lead, lead analyzers, but you also send uh, the condor blood out to the lab as well. Right. So can you talk a little more about the the levels of blood lead you guys Yeah, are yeah, definitely. So when the hunting season is ongoing and at the conclusion of the hunting season, that's when we start our trapping season. So we're trapping or attempting to trap every single condor in the population to do a blood draw to analyze blood lead. And that'll kind of give us a snapshot of the recent exposure and, and, you know, overall health. And we're not super sure of how much that determines overall health and condors are extremely hardy and they don't often show symptoms and they mask really well. They're tough birds. So, um, but it's the best we have. So we start trapping birds and we start analyzing blood and our field testers only read up to 65 micrograms per deciliter, right. which is incredibly high. I mean, if you're talking humans, you know, accepted levels are like five micrograms per deciliter right. for children or going lower, even three, uh, 10 for adults. So we're seeing birds normally come in with, ah, uh, gosh, anywhere from, you know, trace levels all the way up to the hundreds of micrograms per deciliter. And so oftentimes it reads off the tester. And so we, like you said, we have to send samples into the lab and that's where we start getting numbers back that are in the several hundreds. And we had a bird last year that was up around a thousand micrograms per deciliter and she made it through. That's amazing. Yeah. That's just amazing. And we've had birds die at much lower levels. Right. So like we said, that's just a snapshot. We don't know where in the exposure period that is. We don't know how many previous exposures that bird had throughout the season. So there's all sorts of different factors that come into play with the bird's overall health, but mm -hmm. yeah, we do our best. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So kind of jumping ahead to talking about, um, hunting and hunters, you know, it's been my experience that a lot of rehabilitators have a poor view of hunters. Um, and it's kind of a bummer because they were the original conservationists and, um, I really believe that one of the ways that we can combat um, lead issues locally um, within our own rehabilitation hospitals is working directly with hunters. So how can rehabbers uh, around the country work with state agencies or hunters to help the species they care for? Yeah, it's a good question because we all want to do our part and we all want to help, especially you all as rehabilitators, I mean, you're seeing this stuff firsthand. You're seeing eagles die in, in hand, just as we have seen condors. Um, and, and their first inclination sometimes is to be angry and to, and sometimes we lash out, which mm -hmm. I think can be very dangerous because like you said, um, the hunting community, they not only are they playing a big role in these events of poisonings, which we know is not a good thing, but they also have the potential to make it right. Mm -hmm. So and they're pretty much the only ones because we need to take lead ammunition out of the field and use alternatives such as copper and, and, uh, and try to get it more widely in the hands of hunters. So I think the most important thing is to start a dialogue with the mm -hmm. hunting community and, and not an aggressive one. You know, we're at a state of, uh, we're in an interesting time right now where we're very polarized as a country, as individuals, and, and that doesn't seem to solve problems. So if you can start a dialogue and find commonality, you know, both rehabilitators and hunters, I've talked to a lot of hunters, mm -hmm. they love raptors. Mm -hmm. Man, they love, they will be the first ones to tell you all about that golden eagle they saw or that peregrine falcon that they saw stooping. 
and they get a huge kick out of seeing wildlife and they are the original conservationists. They have a long standing tradition of conservation ethic. And I think that hunt, the hunting community still wants to honor that, but where we're lacking is education. Right. Yeah. So that is the most important thing. And that is one of the things that we've started strongly focusing on is educating the hunting community in a way that's non-confrontational in a way that makes people think here or here's the information, um, digest this, mm -hmm. so, you know, chew on this for a while. Tell me what you think, because if you realize that you might be hurting wildlife and you could be affecting raptor populations as a hunter, you say, wow, I didn't realize that first off and second off, I don't want to do that. Right. And that is something that we can work with hunters on. And when we talk to the hunting communities, we get overly overwhelming positive response. Nice. So that's been really cool. And, and to see the hunting community respond as they have to volunteer out here, they've volunteered to switch ammunition, which is incredible testament to, to the hunting community and what they, how they feel about the land and how they feel about raptors and, and, yeah, it's been really cool. And last time I was here in Arizona, you, you guys had a, what is it, 85 or 90% um, rate of hunters? Yeah, so Arizona Game and Fish, mm -hmm. back in 2005, uh, we worked with them to start this non-lead ammo program. So to basically give anybody who drew a tag within the range of the condor in Arizona a free box of copper ammunition. Nice. And that is the preferred alternative to lead-based ammunition because the fragmentation rates are almost non-existent. They generally retain 99 point some percent mm -hmm. of their mass. So you're eliminating that 35% that fragmentation rate, which, which makes a big difference when birds are scavenging. So yeah, when we implemented that, it was received pretty well, but over time it's just grown and it's, it's gone to the point of roughly 85% participation from, that's voluntary participation from the hunting community. And part of that is uh, hunters hauling gut piles out of the field. Some people can't use the copper loads or, you know, they, they don't like the way it fires or there's some issue, but if they're still willing to help, they can take the gut piles out of the field. And we have probably about 5% of hunters that do that. And if you've ever seen a gut pile, um, they're not light. No. It's not something, <laughs> and sometimes you kill your, your deer and you might be two miles away from your, your vehicle and you got to haul that. You've already hauled the entire deer out, your meat, the mm -hmm. stuff that you want. And then you're asking them to go back in the field and haul out a 50 pound stinky gut pile. Right. <laughs> and they're willing to do it exactly. to help. So what a great, great response from the hunting community. Yeah, that's, that's really great because when I talk to a lot of rehabilitators in my work, you know, their first thought is we have to ban lead. We have to just ban lead right. and, and not make it accessible. And what you guys have really taught me is that that doesn't necessarily work. Right. That the best way to get somebody not to participate is to tell them they can't do something. Yep. And so making this a, a voluntary program, I think, has, has been really eye-opening for me. And I think other rehabilitators can apply this locally, too. Instead of mm -hmm. saying, you can't do that, talk and educate. Yeah. Educate people. I think it's great. And we're looking to get lasting results. And the only way you do that is by creating social change. Yes. You know, laws only go so far. And you can create a law, but you still have to get people to follow the law, which is difficult with this issue. It's a very contentious one. It is. So along the same lines, uh, tell me about the work you guys have been doing with other state agencies um, to kind of help make this program successful. Um, and maybe this is something that um, local organizations and rehabilitators can apply as well. 
Yeah, we've, I, like I said, we've worked with Arizona Game and Fish for the last 13 years. And um, similarly, we've worked with uh, the state of Utah, Utah's Department of Natural Resources, and they've started their non-lead ammo program. They've come along with us as well, and they're up to about 80% participation. So we've got both of those states that our southwest population of condors occupy participating in voluntary efforts, which the states like because well, their constituents are their hunting community. Right, and, yeah. You know, and but they also have an obligation to protect species. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, and other things, I mean, we we give talks to Audubon groups all the time and bird groups. And it's really interesting because they're on the same path of, well, we need to ban hunting. Right. And then you start to have that conversation with them. And, and you say, whoa, whoa, back off for a second. Let's, let's think about this. You know, hunting is a long tradition. It's been around for gosh, since early human, mm -hmm. it's ingrained in our biology. I don't think it's necessarily going to go away. Um, but, you know, hunters can make the difference. And we ask these groups, it's like, what can you do? Mm -hmm. You know, because you can't take lead out of the environment. You're not hunting. This right. is not, this is not something you can do. But, but do you want to support this? Well, you can't support it by saying, I hate hunting, let's ban it. Right. So we've actually had an Audubon group in... Uh, Colorado buy non-lead ammunition and donate it to the local hunting community. That's so awesome. when we get groups that are stepping up like that on both sides and both sides coming together, mm -hmm. that's something we don't see a lot anymore. And I think that's a huge success. And I think that's where we're headed, which is really, really something special. I hope you're right, because that's certainly one of our missions at the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Alliance is to kind of bring groups together um, in a sense of community and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the most powerful work can happen is when groups like that work together and join forces. Yeah, collaboration. And that's that's kind of what the Peregrine Fund is doing by um, starting this new branch of the Peregrine Fund, which is called the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And that's been a big step um, for Chris Parrish, who is the, the program director for the Condor Project, who has moved more into this non-lead partnership role where he's working with different state agencies to bring states all over the country on board for education of hunters and voluntary um, programs within their states and and it's being really well received by a lot of states and we've already had you know we have Arizona signed on and Oregon signed on and Utah signed on and we're in talks with many other western states and they've also done some work with um, hunting hunter ed instructors which has gone really well awesome. and these are the people that are affecting future hunters so the, the hunter ed instructors are like, we need to do this. This is important. And a lot of these sporting groups that we're trying to get first, because mm -hmm. they're really important to making the, the greatest amount of change. And we do want to bring other people on at some point, you know, national parks and, and other agencies that are a little more liberal with this kind of stuff. Um, but, but first we want to go after those, those sporting groups. Definitely. And if we can get those the ear of some of these sporting groups, then we're going to be in a really good place to start creating change because that's who the hunters are listening to. That's great. And if people wanted to learn more about the North American non-lead partnership. Well, that website is currently under construction okay. and hopefully we'll be out at some point, cool. but write that down, North American non-lead partnership and uh, do a little Google search at some point in the future. And hopefully we'll have that up. Um, in the meantime, there's another uh, great website called huntingwithnonlead.org. Um, and you can also find, oh gosh, all of our publications and information from the Peregrine Fund on uh, peregrinefund.org. Perfect. Thanks, Tim.
So heading back to talking more about Condor specifically again as we wrap up our time together, you guys mentioned earlier tracking these condors. Um, you guys heavily rely on GPS and telemetry. Um, is there any information that you've learned from the data? Well, we were able to, I mean, the GPS data and the telemetry data is how we were able to determine what the birds were feeding on. Mm -hmm. So that was a big help in identifying the major threat. So that was a big deal. Um, we also had these massive movements over time in the early days of condors moving northward into Utah, mm -hmm. which we didn't see until, you know, the early 2000s. So we went a good five, six years on the program before these birds started to venture out into um, southern Utah where the big sheep herds are up in the mountains there and that's where they spend most of their summers so that's been really helpful for tracking them and it, it also really helps us for finding wild nests you know without GPS if you've ever been to the desert southwest the landscape is vast the Grand Canyon is a brutal place and we can only travel so far within it but by having GPS units on birds we can see their movements and we can find their nest locations and monitor those um, a little more easily than we can hiking through the vast backcountry. Definitely. So, super helpful. Um, it also helps in the sense that we can find congregations of birds. So if a pile of birds were to show up on a GPS location or by radio ground tracking, we could track those birds. And if that happened to be a carcass that we suspected may have been shot, then we know. We know which birds were feeding there. We know which birds that we should target to trap to do a health assessment on. And so all that telemetry data and all that GPS data has helped us probably, um, you know, save lives within the condor population Absolutely. over time. Absolutely, that's great. I just, there's so much information you can get from that kind of tracking data. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of, lots of grad programs to be started with uh, geospatial yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> data. So we have a ton of it and it's all, oh, hopefully someday we can get around to doing that stuff. Awesome. So we're almost out of time. So, um, but I want to get to a couple other little things about the project itself. Um, if people want to get more involved or support uh, your project, where do they go? How can they follow you? How can they get information? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of, uh, one of the ways, as I said, is peregrinefund.org. You can donate to our nonprofit there and help mm -hmm. support condor recovery or any of the other programs that we do. And if you want to follow Condor specifically, you can go to our Facebook page, which is Condor Cliffs. So we're at Condor Cliffs on Facebook. And that's where we try to post most of our field updates and any information that the public might appreciate that's happening directly in the field. In fact, you have um, a lot of your footage from the release on there right now. So if people yeah. want to check that out of the recent public release, they can they can be a part of it and live vicariously through those, those videos on there, which are really great. Definitely, yeah. And we'll have this information um, up on our website as well, so that way people can find you easily. So you mentioned uh, the peregrinefund.org and huntingwithnonlead.org. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any other resources for our listeners, uh, whether it be about non-lead, about lead poisoning in general, or anything else that... Yeah, if you're looking for literature, we have all of our publications for the project posted on peregrinefund.org, and there's a research tab for the projects, and, and you can go and you can look at any one of those publications that we've done regarding condors and lead and fragmentation and scavenging wildlife. There's so much research, so many published 
pieces of literature out there and, and they're great to read for you and I, we love that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and for the general public, I don't know if it's that well received. So yeah, but we want people to read it and, and we hope that it makes a difference. In the meantime, we're just going to keep keep on with the social science because that's what the public seems to respond well to. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for our listeners in particular, they're primarily rehabilitators, uh, wildlife educators, and other wildlife professionals. So I think uh, those are great resources for, yeah. Yeah. for um, professionals in this field. So that's great. Yeah. Grab a cup of, co- grab a cup of coffee and curl up on the couch and, and just go for and it. That's read great. some literature this weekend. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Then is there anything specific that you want to share for our listeners? Uh, I just, set you up? I think I, I would just like to thank you for, for your time and all the volunteer work that you've done with the program over the last year. Um, and we look forward to having you on the program for a little bit longer and helping us out here and there where you can. Awesome. We appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate it too. I'll, I'll keep coming back out as long as you'll have me. So um, <laughs> awesome, Tim. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview with us today. It's, it's always fantastic to be out here in Arizona and be with you guys and the crew. You guys are truly some of the most dedicated people I have ever met in the field. So, well, so thank, thank you. you for being here and thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you. We are out of time today. But if you would like to share this podcast, it is free and available for everyone. You can find this podcast and others on our website, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more. Tell us what you think of our show by using the hashtag MyWildLifestyle and MyWildLifestyleRadio. If you would like more information on the Peregrine Fund and the California Condor Reintroduction Project, visit the Peregrine Fund's website at www.peregrinefund.org. You can also check out their Facebook page at Condor Cliffs. As Tim mentioned, there are a lot of great resources on their website for wildlife professionals, so definitely check those out and click on their research tab. In addition to the Peregrine Fund's resources, we will also have additional resources on lead poisoning and California condors on our website and blog. You can visit us at www.rmwalliance.org. Also stay informed and follow us on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Again, I'd like to thank our special guest, Tim Houck. It has been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for spending time with us and giving us an intimate look into what you all do. I certainly have learned a lot. I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us for My Wildlife Style Radio. I look forward to bringing you more educational topics soon.